This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I got a double dose cause I'm so we're going to talk a little bit about how to pick a doctor and really have a productive, healthy relationship. Once again, joining us, Dr. Ian Lusbader. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you for having me. I love this topic because, I, no, 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 I, I think it's really important to, you know, figure out what's the best way to pick a doctor because these can be these are really important relationships so how do how should we approach this you know many patients come in and uh and they say you know why do i need a doctor why do i need a primary care or pcp i can go to urgent care i can find my own specialist and uh i think they're wrong i think the data really shows that having a primary care physician or pcp really reduces uh, uh, outcomes from dying from cancer, heart disease, stroke, they're really part of your team, a mm-hmm. member of your team, whether it's, uh, you know, your bank, your financial advisor, your lawyer, your accountant. I mean, they need to know you and understand you. Okay, here's what a healthy Ian or Jason or Carol is, right? And here's when, okay, this, something's, something's not right here. Exactly. And, and that takes a relationship to know when something is amiss. There's really a clinical sense, a sixth sense that says, I know you and something's amiss. So first, you know, once we all agree, you need a PCP to be your quarterback, to be your captain of the ship, to really help you, whether it's with travel advice, whether it's weight loss, whether it's, you know, intervening early to screen for disease, whether it's skin, whether it's colon cancer, etc., depending on your age. How do you find one? And, and that can be challenging. So w- once you agree you need one, typically for most patients, if they can't afford concierge medicine uh, and pay pay through the nose, um, they have to find out what physician is in their plan. Right. So you, you go to your uh, insurance, you get a list of primary care, either family physicians or internists uh, who are in your plan and hopefully accessible, what's near you. What's should you, should you inter- forgive me, but should you interview them? Because I think about before my daughter was born, we interviewed pediatricians and you know we found somebody we liked, felt comfortable with. And a- absolutely. Like, but, I just, but we don't necessarily do that. I feel well, like, uh, or do I, th- we? I think we should. You know, certainly it's good to get recommendations from people who've used the doctor uh, for a while and say they've had good results. You know, how do they conduct the practice? Uh, do they have a secretary? Is there a call center? Ideally, they should be affiliated with, you know, other specialists, either with a major medical center if, if you're in New York, a multi-specialty group, at least have access to specialists right. that if you need them, uh, they're available. Uh, are they in my plan? Are they nearby? And then uh, to meet them and and uh, have an interview, uh, see how it goes, see if there's a chemistry. Uh, certainly there's a, a, a connection that needs to occur. Uh, and then you need to maintain an ongoing relationship. Certainly for the first visit, they get extensive history. You want to get undressed for the exam, let, let the doctor examine you. Uh, and then for some patients, they may not come back for two years and then call with a problem, right. not a good idea. Once you've found someone, once you've established a relationship, nurture that, come in at least once a year, if not more, so the physician gets to know you and, and the nuances. What are your preferences? Are you someone who will take your medication? Are you someone who's resistant to medication? Right. Do you want the natural approach? Do yeah. you not? 
And so what's the warning sign that maybe this isn't the right person for you early on in the relationship, Dr. Mosbader? So someone can look good on paper. You know, they can have yeah. board certification, which we advise. They can be affiliated with a major medical center. They can have good training. Uh, but they may not listen to you. They may not make eye contact. They may be only focused on the computer. Uh, are they asking uh, appropriate questions? Do they call you back? Do they get back to you with labs? Uh, so there are a number of things that, that go in to the to the relationship mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just chemistry some patients are more needy and they need someone who's more responsive other doctors are or less emotive i'm always curious about those surveys that you often see in magazines or you walk into a doctor's office and it's like you know top 20 best doctor in westchester yeah exactly yeah. what are those those are uh not really that good they're they're often uh, peer reviews or, or people who are more well-known and really don't necessarily represent, you know, quality physicians. They may be quality, they may be busy, they may have a subspecialty. You know, it's one element, just like online reviews patients will look at. There are many happy patients, there may be a few disgruntled patients, you really can't go completely by that. That's a great point though. Is there like an online site that oh, you know, the sure. medical community recommends? Because I feel like there's a lot of stuff online, but you can go in the, <laughs> it may right. be misleading. Is there a great place that kind of really says, okay, you, you know, you get smart reviews of the medical community? Certainly, uh, Health Grades is one site. Health there are grades. several other sites uh, that, that you can look at. You can check board certification online, which is only one component. It's certainly good that on paper, people, physicians have passed certain tests. Uh, and you can look at other reviews, again, keeping in mind everything's not going to be positive or negative. Right. But you can get a sense from people of the nature of, of the waiting room. And sometimes you just have to jump in and try it and see if there's that uh, connection and then nurture it by having ongoing communication. Only about 30 seconds left, but when do you just say, I'm going to urgent care or I'm you know going to the sort of doc in the box, minute clinic, whatever. Uh, you know what, you there's a use. role for that. Uh, I find that most patients wind up coming in Monday or Tuesday after a weekend. You know, if you can't reach your doctor, if there's if you've got a cough or cold, uh, an abrasion, certainly go in. Anything more serious, please go to the emergency room mm -hmm. where they have CAT scans and backup. But it is reasonable for uh, at midnight if someone is not available, but it doesn't replace an ongoing right. primary care doc who will manage you for the long haul. Be doc part in of the your box. Team. Talking about I haven't heard that. Never first. heard that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Dennis Kellyism. All right. <laughs> Dr. Ian Lesvader, clinical great. associate professor of medicine. Great as always. NYU Langone Medical Center. Always good to catch up. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world. All right, Carol. I'm going to make a confession. Yeah. I love IPOs. They're I know. so exciting. You yeah. know, it's like a big milestone for a company. Yeah. It also shows that the market's sort of robust. People are making money. And, and then it's kind of a report card immediately mm -hmm. on what investors think of this company. It's been an exciting year so far for IPOs. Let's figure out what's been going on and what's going to happen next. Jackie Kelly is America's IPO leader for Ernst & Young. She joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Kelly with two E's, though. I'm only a one E. I know. Uh, I always like to guy. say. Do I have that right, Jackie? You're a two E person? That's right. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. So what's going on uh, with IPOs? It, people are pretty excited about getting public right now. Oh, it's been a really great year. So many exciting things. And obviously, we've been waiting so long for all those great unicorns to come out. And then we're starting to see the beginning of that. So very, very exciting. 
All right. So let's like dig a little bit, uh, you know, into that because right, we are seeing some enthusiasm and we all talked about kind of late last year. All right. 2019 is going to be the year for the IPOs. What specifically are you seeing in terms of momentum and the types of companies that might continue to go public uh, into the end of this year and into next year? Right. And it's, it's, been really robust, obviously, um, as it relates to our unicorn companies. So companies with um, you know valuations over a billion, uh, they're they're pouring out here, which is fantastic. Um, technology is you know uh, dominating as it relates to capital raised. Over fifty percent of the capital we've raised year to date is coming out of tech, which is fantastic. We've been waiting for that to happen. With healthcare just right behind it as far as deal numbers, but you know there there are smaller deals for sure. Um, so people are a little you know they're asking questions about you know can only unicorns go out? Absolutely not. They're really just a small in the in the grand scheme of things, high profile, but a smaller percentage of the deals. So average deal size is just over $100 million. It's a great, healthy IPO market. And so talk to us a little bit, Jackie, about the post-IPO performance, because we obviously looked at Uber, we looked at Lyft, there, and then we look on the other side of the coin at Beyond Meat. Uh, you know, what is characterizing, generally speaking, or as you get beyond sort of those big name brands, in terms of how the stocks are actually trading? Uh, the stocks are doing great. Uh, overall, our IPO market segment as as an asset class here is up 80% off their IPO but wait, price. Wait, wait, can I jump in? Lyft isn't doing so great since it's IPO. I think it's but down on about average. 100%. No, I know, I know. But it's, but it's not everybody has done well. You know, n not everybody, but I think you you do have to look at the class altogether. And, mm. and there are going to be bumps in the road along the way. Um, every company is a little bit different. Yeah, I know we bucket them all as IPOs, but you have to look at them individually. Uh, some of the IPOs coming out are not, you know, they're still uh, pre-profit, right? They still have a little ways to go to get to that, you know, profitability. So there's, you know, these companies are communicating a path there. Uh, on the other hand, most of these companies that are coming to market are they're well prepared, they're profitable, and uh, or or they've got really clear plans to get there, and that's what everybody's buying into. It's a lot of optimism. It's very exciting. All right, so Jackie, what about the tendency, and it's only been a couple names over the past few years, Spotify and Slack among them, of a direct listing, you know, not using this to raise money, but using a, a different mode to get public and, and get out there? You know, it's so interesting because the unicorns have put a, a unique focus on this. Frankly, direct listings have been around for a long time. A lot of our public spins, so when a public company spins off one of their divisions and takes that that division public, for instance, that is also a direct listing. So these are situations where companies that are going public are, are not raising capital. So I think it's still a small percentage of the deals out there, but it is interesting. And so companies that are highly capitalized in this segment are taking advantage of the fact that they get liquidity for their stockholders and especially their employees who've been with them a long time. So in terms of, I don't know how specific you can get, uh, you know, and I think we talked a little bit about sectors, but what should investors be looking out for in terms of the issues that will come into the IPO market later this year or into early next year? Tech is still going to be at the forefront. I think it's our traditional ones we're seeing right now. So tech's at the forefront with healthcare, still our biggest deals. That said, 
the market is open for every sector. What is really popular, though, is that you have to be a tech-enabled business to really get the eye of investors and really get those valuations that companies want. So, uh, I think the stories that are being told today very much focus on the digital side of the businesses, the technology-enabled portions of the businesses. Not to say that you can't be a traditional, you know, growth company, but that gets a lot of valuation attention. All right. We're going to leave it there. Jackie Kelly, America's IPO leader at Ernst & Young. She joins us, joined us excuse me, from our Bloomberg 960 studio out in San Francisco. I didn't forget who you were. I know. We're just having that moment. We like are. I don't know. We're who li- are you? I know. Yeah. I know. It's like, hi, I'm Carol Masters. It's Jason <laughs> Kelly. Uh, so remember that missing, speaking of forgetting maybe where something is uh, or who somebody is, <laughs> remember that missing Da Vinci that we told everybody about um, that turned up on the yacht of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman? I do. Well, Artnet was the group that figured out where exactly it was. And I remember our own uh, Katja Kasakina giving them mad props for that. Mm -hmm. And it's just a part of what they do over at Artnet. Jacob Paps is here with us. He's the CEO. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Great to have you here. Well, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us about what's going on in the art world. I guess maybe back up a step and help us understand what you do because it, it is multifaceted. Yeah, I mean, Artnet was uh, actually founded 30 years ago, and uh, we went uh, online in 1995 already. Wow. And, you know, the reason that Artnet exists is that, you know, we always looked for inefficiencies in the art market and um, how technology could improve them. Well, so, so tell us how then you guys approach it to make it much more efficient. So the first thing we did in 1989 is we, we, we noticed that there's really no, not enough data in the market, not enough information. And the market really can only grow if it's transparent. And so the first thing we did is we collected uh, sales information from all the auction houses around the world and made it available via a, a subscription uh, to our clients. And by doing that, we created transparency, got against a lot of resistance. You know, everyone in the art market initially. That's what I was curious, like how did you get all that information? Yeah, it's, it's publicly available, but it okay. was a, a big hazard to, to really collect all that data. And everyone in the market initially, you know, didn't like the idea of, you know, all this information now being yeah, available to everyone. Yeah, transparency is not totally their friend <laughs> in this case, right? Yeah, for, for some strange reason. But over time, I think everyone started realizing that the market really can only grow if it's transparent. And if you look at the, the, the data, you can see that the market has tremendously grown since we launched mm-hmm. the database. And it's, not, of course, not only because of us, uh, you know, but I think we helped uh, uh, the market grow a lot. It's probably 10 times as big now. Well, I think with all that data, and right, data is just like so important. It doesn't matter what industry you're talking about. But then it lets you look at, I guess, types of art. You also get to look at buyers of art, right? And really break down the market and see where the flows are. Yeah, I mean, you can you can, you can look at uh, all sorts of things in the data. You can look at individual categories. You can see how contemporary art is doing against modern art or, or impressionism. And you can look at individual artists. You can look at uh, buckets of artists and compare it to the S&P, for example, and you know, there's all sorts of ways to, to slice and dice the data. All right, so he set us up that we've got to ask him, so how is art doing versus the S&P? Because the S&P and the Dow and the NASDAQ are doing pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the last uh, 20 years, you can, you can say that you know, the top 20 artists um, outperformed the S&P by a lot. I would wow. say by probably six times. 
Wow. Yeah. And so amazing. has yeah. all of that transparency, has it expanded the world for artists? Are you able to discover new artists because the market is bigger and, and the market is, is more transparent? What's been the impact on, on the producers, as it were? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's more money and, you know, and there's, uh, you know, more people wanting to be in the art market. But unfortunately, you know, if you look at the data, you know, the co there's really a concentration with, you know, a few yeah. players. You know, you have, the, you have a, I don't know, the top 20, 30 artists. Then you have a few galleries and, and a few uh, players really that make the market. And that's where the, where the growth is. Everywhere else in the market, it's, it doesn't look that good, you know, and, and particularly you know, below $1 million or so, you, you see that the market over the years has actually declined a little wow. bit. I'm also curious what you think of the big auction houses, and we're talking about Sotheby's and Chris yeah. Christie's now in the hands, now private companies, right? So we talk about transparency and disclosure and so on and so forth, but we had that big deal, um, uh, is it Patrick Drahi that bought um, Sotheby's? They've been three decades as a public company, so you have that one being private. We know Christie's is already private. How does that kind of complicate either what you're trying to do uh, in terms of providing kind of more information out there? I don't think it will complicate what we're doing at all. And, you know, uh, you know, from what I heard is that, you know, uh, that, you know, they have uh, very sound plans, you know, what to do with Sotheby's and, you know, it, it won't. But it I won't mean, in terms of information, right? Because as a private company, it's like a little bit different in terms of how they manage Christie's, it. Christie's is private and, and so are many other players, you know. and Already? Already. And, yeah. um, and we've been collecting that data um, for, for 30 years. And they're also our biggest clients, so it's uh, you know I don't I don't see any any change in that area coming. From. So can we talk about MBS? Yeah. So talk to us about that because I, I feel like this was a moment a, a moment in, in the art world. You know, this four hundred fifty million dollar price tag for a Da Vinci. We followed all of the various controversy about it. What did that painting? What does that painting sort of mean for, or what does it tell us about where we are in the art market right now? <laughs> Well, it, it, it tells you that the top segment is doing very, very, very well. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a, a tall price for you know for for such an artwork. I mean, it's it is a is a great piece, and you know there are only a handful uh, of Leonardo da Vinci paintings in the world. So you know that's that that's why the value is uh, so high. And I think they really wanted it um, in, in in that area and in the in the in, in the museum. So I think that that's uh, the, the explanation. How Are you, you surprised it hasn't ended up in the museum yeah. yet? That it's on the boat? Well, I actually am surprised. You know, I mean, for a long time, no one actually knew where it was, and there's a lot of rumor. Uh, on top of that, that the, that the painting is not authentic. That right. one, of, one of his students actually uh, painted it. So. You know, there's a lot of mystery around this painting, and I can't wait for it to show up at some point. But, how but did right you now find it's on the boat. How did you find out it was on the boat? Well, I didn't. But one of our, one of our journalists. We didn't. We didn't speak about um, you know the the other segments that Artnet covers. You know, but we have a, a, a newswire. We are the yeah only dedicated newswire for the art market. We publish around ten to twenty articles every day, and as part of that, you know, segment, you know, we, you know, we had one of our journalists, you know, discover that where the painting is. It's really, really cool. So, in terms of what you're seeing, we just want to wrap up a little bit, but I'm just curious about what you're seeing in the art market. I mean, would you consider it healthy at this point? I mean, this is something, the the art world is something our listeners are very, very interested in, and I am curious about what you're seeing in terms of generally the outlook here. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question. I mean, when you when you talk about the art market, you have to really look in detail what that actually means. You know, there, there are many different markets. Um, there's, mm -hmm. you know, different countries. Yeah. You know, there's the contemporary market, there's the impressionist market. And, you know, some areas are wor uh, performing very, very well, particularly the contemporary market in the, in the high end, you know, above... Uh, above uh, one million, but there are other segments that are not performing so well, and mm -hmm. other artists that are not performing so well for no particular reason. There is really, you know, a couple of people that you know, uh, you know, uh, have a lot of power and, and decide yeah. on the on the market. Um, interesting stuff. Thank you so much for stopping by our studio. Really Great appreciate it. Thanks for having yeah. me. Great yeah. way to wrap up the week. Jacob Papst, he's CEO at Artnet in our interactive broker studio.